Father God, Lord, I pray, um, Lord, that you would give us your presence in this moment through your spirit. Lord, I pray um, that you would be teaching us, Lord, uh, not just our minds, Lord, but our hearts, our, our souls. Um, Lord, so much of what we know of you is, is not in our mind, Lord, but is ultimately in our felt experience, our lives, Lord. Um, and so, Lord, I pray that you would be giving us in this moment just the chance to experience you. Um, Lord, it's what we ultimately need. It's what we ultimately most desire. And so, um, Lord, I pray that we would experience you for who you are, uh, and that would be something that continues to shape us and transform us into your people, um, Lord, that bring your kingdom, that are free and are able to be a part of free people who free people. Lord, I pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a time... Of reset, typically, uh, the new year comes times of resolutions and thinking through just how do I reset my diet, because December typically for our family is like a month of yes, and January is a month of no, and so they balance each other out, and then we reset budgets, you reset goals for the year. My wife and I try to take a day to uh, just get away and plan uh, at the end of tw- or the end of each year, uh, and and just think through the next year. What are our goals? What does our family want to be about? So that we're not just um, doing the things that come at us, but we're trying to proactively step into things that we want to do. Um, and you might even be resetting your schedule. If you're a student, you might be getting a whole new list of classes and start times, and and now all of a sudden you are in a very different. Uh, just time of getting up or going to bed or going to work, and all things shift around for you like that. And so this is always in the time of refocusing and resetting, there's a sense of returning to what is foundational and what is basic. And so we wanted to be talked as a pastoral team uh, across our congregations. We said we wanted to do something where we could have a series at the beginning of 2020, the last year of the decade. And let me just, really quick, little soapbox for me, not spiritual at all. 2020 is the last year of the decade, not the first year of a decade, because there is no year zero. So therefore, you start counting at one, you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And so you don't begin with ten or begin with zero, you begin with one. Not spiritual, I'll just off my chest. There we go. All right, here we go. So as we begin the last year of the decade, we wanted to just take time to focus our minds on what is most foundational and what is most um, shaping for us and ultimately for us as a community that is the person of Jesus. And so we want to take a series where we just looked and stared intently and put our focuses intently on who Jesus is. And as I say that, I know there's that sense of the room of like, okay, yeah, that's great. This is a series for new Christians or maybe non-Christians, which ultimately is true. We always want to be a place where we are teaching and shaping our people that are just coming to faith. Or maybe if you're here, we always want to preach in such a way that we know that there are non-Christians who are here that are attending and are saying, hey, I'm seeking out Jesus in some way, or I'm just interested in Christianity in some way. I mean, I've talked with many over the years that just have come for a while and just had a chance to just like explore or or doubt, or press in, or be a skeptic, and so we always want to, we know you're here, we're glad you're here, 
And we always want to say that we know that you come in possibly to this situation, this gathering, saying like, okay, ultimately Christianity to you maybe has been pictured as like a group of good people who self-righteously look down on other people, which I hope that you'll experience in this place. I hope you'll experience always that though, yes, we are broken, we are sinful, and so therefore often we are self-righteous and prideful, that ultimately that is not the most true thing about us, that what is most true about us is that we are people who are broken and needy and marked by Jesus, who is our righteousness and is our right standing to be in the Father's arms and to be our our sense of that we are children of God, not because of our loves, but because of his. And so that we don't sing about how good we are, but we sing about how good Jesus is. And that's part of what we want to talk about in the course of the series. But then also, again, this isn't just a series for new Christians or non-Christians. Ultimately, it's for you if you've been walking with Jesus for years. Because no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, we want to continually be a people that are shaped by who Jesus is. And I mean that by... A.W. Tozer, who's a theologian, said the most important thing about any person is what they think about God, or what they believe about God, actually, is I believe more specifically what he said. And here's something I'm continuing to learn each year following Jesus. Belief is not primarily a mental game. We like to think of it as like, oh, I got to believe, I got to think, I got to learn the right things and believe the right things. But ultimately, I'm learning belief is, is so much deeper in our souls and existence than just what we think. Illustration. My family home growing up in the garage, when you entered into the garage with it, from the outdoors with the car, there was a slight raise of the concrete. So every time you went in, there was a bump going in, raising up, or going out, lowering down. And I go to college, my parents fix this. Every single time I go back to our house, Every single time I'm sitting in a car that passes over the threshold of the, gra- the garage, my entire body tenses just slightly to absorb a shock. Now, I know with my mind, I can look at the garage, I can look at the moment where there once was a gap in concrete, it's no longer there. I can sit there, I can stare at it. I can sit there and preach to my mind over and over and over again, this is true. But if you sit me in that car, all the while me saying this is true, the second the car passes over the threshold, my body still tenses to absorb a shock. Because what I believe is, yes, part of what I think about in my mind, but it's also so much of what I experience in my body, in my soul, in my emotions. And it's the same way with God. The same way with Jesus. That what you believe to be true about Jesus is, yes, what you know with your mind, but it's also historically your relationship with your family, your father, your mother, experiences shaping core memories that you've had, ways that you have continued to interpret the world. And so if that's true, then we want to be regularly looking back and resetting our eyes on who Jesus is and being shaped by who he actually is and, and, and letting it shape where other people, other relationships, other experiences have malformed that. I mean, I've been following Jesus for many years and I know all the right things about who he is. I can answer all of the theological questions, but there's still parts of my soul that function like God's going to abandon me when I fail. That Jesus is rejecting me if I don't produce enough, if I don't do enough, if I'm not on it. That Jesus is calling me to a life that will not satisfy and ultimately he's calling me away from my joy. I know those are intellectually not true, but I just need to be regularly reminded 
and shaped by the God of the Scriptures. And so this is a communal way to do that. It's just to take a look into the book of John and the seven I am statements Jesus makes about himself. The first half of the book of John is organized around both Jesus' miracles that John is trying to show you. This is what Jesus can do. And then who Jesus says he is. These seven statements. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. And so on and so forth. And what's always true when you realize when Jesus says, I am, and then something. One, that he's invoking the imagery of Exodus 3, that we just went through the book of Exodus, and when Moses goes before Pharaoh, and he's told, hey, you're going to go through the most powerful man in the world, and you're going to tell him, let my people go. He says, okay, who am I going to say who sent me? He said, you're going to say, I am sent you. And I am was meaning that God is saying, I am the pre-existent, eternal one. I am the foundation of reality before anything was. I am. After everything is gone, I am. And so Jesus, when he says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, he's being very intentional to evoke upon that imagery, both one to say, he is God. He's saying, I am God in the flesh. But then also, he's saying, hey, these things that are true, me being the light of the world, is a foundational reality to the world. And the more you understand it, the more you will function in a way that's congruent with reality. Because if we say that you are something, like one of your traits, you are kind, we would find out, and we could say, you might be a wonderful, loving, pleasant person. I mean, you just know that person who's like the kindest person. And then if you live with that person, you find out that person is kind unless they are tired or hungry or stressed or their favorite team lost, or their favorite contestant of the Bachelorette lost, or whatever have you, and you find that there's limitations to who they are. But when God says, no, I am love, he always is love. That there is nothing in him, there's nothing that happens that happens outside of him being love. When he says, I am the light of the world, then there's something deep and foundational about that reality, and so we want to hold on to that as we look into, and that's the first statement we're looking into today, and if you would open... I'm going to read just John 8, verse 12, just a single verse, so it'll be a long flip for a small read, but hey, we want to get our eyes on it. It's on page 894 in the Black Bible around you. John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To give you context, because we read that verse out of context, we're just reading that in itself, Jesus has picked a very particular moment to declare to everyone that he is the light of the world. Ultimately, he's decided to do it at the Jewish Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, depending on how you translate it, which was a feast that would take place every autumn, in which Israel would go out into the wilderness and set up tents and booths to remember the time that they wandered in the wilderness after they left Egypt in the Exodus and God led them. And they would perform a few different signs to remind them of that time, but one of them that they would do is that one day they would go to the temple in Jerusalem and they would light 16 golden bowls of oil so large that you would have to ascend a ladder to light these. And so with 16 giant 
bowls of oil burning. Light would shoot out of every window and open door of the temple and would flood the city. And then people would then from that oil take torches and take them out in the street and sing and dance. And they are remembering the fact that their God led them in the wilderness as a pillar of fire and that he will continue to lead them. And not only they're remembering back of how God led them through the wilderness, but they're also remembering forward to a statement in Isaiah, or a statement in Zechariah, sorry, that says that in the last, there will be a time where there will be no need for light, but there will be uh, no darkness and, and light, but it will be light all the time. And so they have this ceremony remembering that each time and every year. And at the height on the last day of the festival is Jesus that stands up most likely underneath these 16 golden bowls. And while everybody is in the fever pitch moment, he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. That whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's not just a empty phrase that hangs in the air. It's loaded with symbolism and meaning. One of the most basic symbols in our literature today is ultimately light and darkness. Almost every book you'll ever read will have some element of that symbol in it. And it's because it is a distinction that goes back as far as Genesis 1. When God creates everything, it says in the moment before creation, there's formlessness over waters and there's darkness. And God's spirit hovers over. And then the next moment it says God commands light to break forth. And light comes out and he calls the light good. Interestingly enough, he doesn't call the darkness good. And so he separates light from darkness. And at that moment we have the rivalry beginning. And then through all throughout the scriptures, all throughout history, we have this seeming juxtaposition of light representing hope, life, joy, and darkness, representing death, pain, struggle, evil. And part of us can be like, okay, like, why are they so down on night? Like, ultimately, like, I like night. I'm a night owl, or I, you know, like the nightlife, or I like just, it's the time when you're typically not working, it's more rest, it's more relational. And this isn't, like, your mama who's like, nothing good happens past 7 p.m. This is them focusing on this concept that in the ancient Near East, they are in a pre-electric world. When the sun sets, if not for a moon, darkness is almost total. And because of that, night is a time where you're more vulnerable. It's more dangerous. Uh, evil commonly would, or just uh, wickedness would commonly happen at night, and it's really no different than today. We got our grill stolen about a month ago. It didn't happen at 3.30 in the afternoon. No, it happened, we wake up the next morning, we happened overnight, somebody took in, even though we flood our whole backyard with light, they were very bold and audacious just by having the darkness of night to come in and take our grill. Uh, and we're still looking for it on Facebook, so we'll see. Either way. Or you think about moments or places where we think of shameful acts happening. I think of strip clubs. Places where, hey, we're all coming around here, but we realize there's something shameful about this, and so the lights are kept low. There's a veil of darkness kept over this. Because there's something that vulnerability gets exposed in the light. There's safety that comes with light. 
That's why I watch scary movies the way that I do. I'm fascinated by scary movies, but I cannot handle them, so I watch them five minutes at a time in the middle of the day, so that when I'm sitting there, and eventually when it gets too intense, I just turn it off, and I start again after I calm down three days later. And that's how I go about it, because there's this safety in this function of light that brings safety. Because when you think about light, when you think about the realities that we're talking about, there's several things that light does. One, uh, I mean, there's several things we could say, but one, life, uh, light brings life. Jesus said that you would have the light of life if you followed him. Because that's true, that we know that's true just by basic herbology and gardening. We know that if you garden somewhere, you need to have a plenty of natural light to shine upon it. That if you have plants that are, de- uh, are deprived of light, you will find them moving themselves towards open windows to try to attract towards it. We also know that light naturally brings light. It also naturally illuminates. Not a crazy idea, but still just a function of light if you think about it. If you are in somewhere where you don't know where you are and it's dark, you're going to pull out your phone and illuminate to be able to navigate the obstacles. Light is an illuminating presence. And then also light by its nature destroys darkness. Light and dark cannot coexist. And just a spark of light. I don't know if you've ever been in these situations. I think I talked about this recently. If you've ever been in those caves where they'll be on a cave tour and they'll take you in the deepest part of the cave and they'll turn off all the lights and the darkness is utter black. And all they have to do is strike a single match and the entire cavern is dispelled of the darkness and filled with light. Because light, by its function, destroys darkness. And so... Jesus, when he stands up in this moment, says, hey, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows after me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Is evoking many things throughout the scriptures, but I just want to look at those three themes really quickly with you in our time this morning, that how he looks, how he is the one who uh, brings life as the light of the world. He's the one who illuminates darkness as the light of the world, and he's the one who destroys dark as the light of the world. And so that's our time here this morning. And so just jumping off in that first one, he ultimately is the one who takes death and brings it to life. We don't like to think about death. It's something in us naturally that just knows it doesn't belong in this world. And again, in our prayer for the city today, and then last month, on both December 3rd and January 3rd, I get a call on both days from disciples and blocks about losing a child. And in the course of the same month, I've sat in two hospitals with two people that have experienced death. And we've sat there and we've prayed. And we've prayed about how God is the destroyer of death, that he hates death, that he will not allow death to reign, and that death will not get the final say. However, in that moment, we have just had to continue to exist in the reality that death is still present. But ultimately, We are a people that holds on to a hope that death does not get the final say. That Jesus on the cross takes death on himself and absorbs it and gives it a death blow. And he says, hey, it's it's not going away right now, but its power has been taken away. That for all of you who are in me, I deliver out of the domain of, of death and darkness into the kingdom of light of the beloved son. It says in both Colossians and 1 Peter. 
I bring that up because if you're here and you either don't know Jesus or you're not walking with Jesus, I think sometimes I avoid going this bluntly at this, but I think just, again, this last month has just been this point where like, I just, we need to sit and just stare directly at this moment. Without Jesus, then all we have to do is think about that death is coming for us. And all we can do is distract ourselves from that. But with Jesus, then ultimately we are not destined for death. We're not destined for decay. We're not destined for pain. That all of those things will be swallowed up. And as I prayed a moment ago, every tear will be wiped away. As Tolkien wrote in The Lord of the Rings, all sad things come untrue. And so we sit in this moment and we mourn what's broken. We mourn what's wrong. But we hold on to the reality that Jesus being the light of the world means that death doesn't get the final say. And so ultimately, Jesus being the light of the world means that he is life that swallows up death. Secondly, Jesus being the light of the world means that he's illumination to darkness. Jesus talks about, hey, anyone who follows after me will not walk in darkness. You'll have the light of life. He's referring to that idea that when you walk in darkness, ultimately you find yourself lost. Lost is a very churchy word, so we should define our terms. In Romans 1, it talks about that people are made to know God. They're meant to walk with God. They're meant to be in relationship to God. And when we are not, which we all come into this world not, we find ourselves with our understanding darkened, our thinking darkened, and our hearts darkened. And this is not to say that if you are not a Christian, that you cannot be a brilliant mind, a brilliant, a brilliant contributor to society, that there are many, because of the image of God that we are all made in, and because of common grace, there are many brilliant and wonderful discoveries and things that are going to be made, not by Christians, but by non-Christians. It doesn't mean like, hey, there's like wrong thinking in every piece of a person if they don't believe in Jesus. What it means is this, that when you're not walking in the same where you recognizing God as God, ultimately you do replace that God with something and typically it's yourself. That ultimately you take yourself and become the one who defines what is good, what is best, what is right, what is true. And so I define what's best for me. If I want it, if I need it, then how can it be wrong? But let's just take that. I mean, just take the idea of like living for your own safety, satisfaction, and pleasure, which all of us are pretty much prone to do if we're not uh, continually being shaped by the Holy Spirit. We live in a culture where wealth is unprecedented. I mean, we can travel the world with no barriers. We can eat the best food. We can drink well-crafted drinks. We can enjoy health for longer and, and higher quality of life, higher quantity of that quality of life. We can build up nest eggs that you can't outspend even if you spend the last third of your life trying to do so. And yet, I've marked many times, there has not been a year since the 1960s that as they've measured anxiety and depression that has not raised and happiness has not decreased. Why? Because ultimately you're not made to live for your own pleasure. 
your own satisfaction, your own safety. You're ultimately made to live, to worship God, and to serve others. To seek to raise up image bearers in his image by loving and pouring yourself out for another person. I mean, John Ortberg, the pastor, says this. He says, sin eventually destroys my capacity even for enjoyment, let alone meaning. It distorts my perceptions, alienates my relationships, inflames my desires, and enslaves my will. That is what it means to lose your soul. It's not a cosmic threat. It's a clinical diagnosis. It's not, I could end up there. It's, I could become that. Because ultimately, to be lost is, yes, not this churchy term of, oh, that person is somebody God is mad at. It's ultimately someone who finds themselves as be a ruined soul. Again, not as some judgment of, oh, wow, they are less than, but rather there's a way in which God said, hey, I know life. I'm the author of it, and I'm trying to line you up to the way that it's meant to be, not so that you'd have less joy, but so that you'd have so much more. Not that you would be giving something up, but that you would be gaining. You are walking out of death into life when you listen to my voice. That's why when we become people who slowly but surely learn to lay down our definition of what we say we want and need and say when it conflicts with God's, I'm going to intentionally walk towards what you say is best and away from what I think is best. We slowly but surely become people who find that we trade death for life, that we don't have to run away from the author of life to experience it. And so we start to believe him about what he says about money. I ultimately am not going to find the most joy by spending it on myself or by hoarding it, but ultimately I'm going to find the most joy by generously giving and being a part of investing in the souls of lives of women and men. We start to believe in what he says about sexuality. That ultimately I'm not going to find the most pleasure when I get to use it as much as I want and there's no repression of it in any given moment, but rather when I use it the way he's designed, when I use it the way where he says, hey, this isn't just about bodies and, and, and fluids, this is about two souls who have fully committed to one another and are, and are mingling together one another in the context of marriage. Or when we think about filling ourselves versus emptying ourselves for others. I mean, there's no part of me that wants to empty myself for others, but then, man, when I find myself doing it, I find, man, this is what I was designed to do. And so, ultimately, Jesus is coming to say, I'm the light of the world. He's saying, hey, I'm illuminating a way to actually live a kingdom life, the way that you're actually designed to be. This isn't to earn salvation. You already have it. But now come and live with life and joy. Step out of your fear. Step out of that which is holding you into patterns of what which you once were. And so Jesus comes as the light of the world to illuminate the dark. And lastly, Jesus comes as the light of the world to destroy dark. Sin gets empowered in the dark. We all have sin. We're in church. We can be honest about this. But some of you are struggling with sin and you're letting it stay in the dark. And so you're struggling with some level of lust, pornography, or sin issue. You're struggling with um, a level of addiction, maybe to something common like alcohol or, or common pain medication. There's those in this room that are struggling 
with bitterness and anger. And there doesn't seem to be any way to let go of what somebody has done to you. Whether it's people that are emotionally, verbally, physically abusive with your spouse, with your significant other. And I'm just saying, that's here in the room. And that's here of a lot of us that would like to say, or like to put ourselves together. But ultimately, when we leave the sin in the dark, we allow a level of empowerment to happen. It allows it to grow stronger and stronger. Listen to, we read this in our, uh, in our assurance, but listen to the words of 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness and we lie and do not practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I always used to read this and think about the idea of like, oh, I need to walk in the light as he is in the light. It's like I need to be holy and perfect as he is holy and perfect rather than realizing that this is ultimately talking about, no, if you step in and just say, hey, I am broken still. Here are my doubts. Here are my ways that I'm still wrestling with who Jesus is and how he's good. And here are ways that my sinful nature is still very much so reigning in this time. Here are ways that I'm still trying to, yes, I know all the right things to think, but I can't stop struggling with this addiction. I can't stop wanting to escape through just turning things off, whether it be through entertainment or it be through alcohol or it be through anything. I can just regularly come back to the sense of I know what's true, but yet what I'm still wrestling with, I need to bring out into the light and then watch it actually start to lose power there. Because sin has this way that it just tends to like make us isolate and make us step back and not bring anybody else in. And this is not the moment like everybody needs to know your sin all the time. I just need to walk around addicted to pain medications, folks. And not everybody at all times needs to know my sin, but somebody needs to know. In fact, I'd say multiple somebodies over time. And again, this is not like for you who I just named one of your sins. This is for everybody in the room because I could go through and we could eventually name everybody's. But all of us need a place where we can be open and honest and step into the light as he is into the light because Jesus says, hey, you want to be free, receive freedom? Then come and confess both to me, who I know your sin already, by the way. And I have not condemned you for it. Rather, I say, no, come and receive healing for it. Come and let me wash you from it. Come bring it into the light and let it lose power and then really get, put a knife into it, uh, kind of continually bringing it out into the open with other people and being open and honest and vulnerable about what's going on in your life. Because ultimately, if we don't, we'll be destroyed by dividing ourselves. And this is one of the most common things that happens and is happening right now. Again, I really believe this is tied to the happiness going down and depression, anxiety going up in so much of us, that we live divided lives. And counselors and psychologists have been talking about this concept for a long time, but they talk about the idea of that often we have a true self, but we commonly take the ideal self, and that's the one who gets to walk around each day and gets to go to work 
and gets to, it's all the parts of ourselves that would get promoted or would be approved of. And so we find all the best parts of ourselves, the parts that we like, and we project that out. And that is the ideal self that everybody gets to see. Meanwhile, we split away from us the shadow self. And it's referred to that because it's what gets to hide in the dark. It's all the parts that we know Jesus still needs to fully bring to the light. It's all the parts that we know they still need healing in. It's all the places where we still don't believe what's true. No matter what we believe in our head, we don't believe it in our soul. And so all of those things that we would never put on the social media profile go into the dark and they hide back there. And so ultimately what happens is two things. One, you lose your actual true self because you begin to be divided in two. This is what everybody gets to see and here's the parts of me that no one gets to see but are very much so part of my reality. And secondly, there's a saying that the soul always gets out eventually. Eventually, you become exhausted from keeping the shadow self back. And it starts to leak out in anger and addiction in some way to bring life because it can't be pent up forever. It has to come to the light and be known and be healed. They tell you all the time in pastoral ministry, though I think this is true for everybody, I mean, pastors right now, if you just look around the landscape of the news, like, are just dropping all the time. Burnout, moral failure, all the time. And ultimately, they'll say there's a lot of reasons why that happens. I mean, spiritual warfare is a big part of it. Of course, there's just tons of things that can happen. But they say one of the things that you can at least actively be a part of controlling is that there is going to be an image of what people think of you, and there is going to be what you really are. And however big that gap is, is where burnout and addiction and stress are going to grow and eventually bubble over because the soul always gets out. And that's not just true for pastors. That's true of all of us. And the beautiful news of the gospel is that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Come to me. Be exposed and not be condemned but continue to come and say, yes, I struggle with lust. I am racked by bitterness. I continually have depression based off of doubts that I have about if God really loves me. And as I bring these out into the light, it's not like they just magically snap and are gone in time one, but no, as I continue to bring them out and walk with people and have people walk alongside me and pray for me and know me, then over time and over years, they do the work we talked about at the very beginning of this and the function of this whole sermon series. They begin to work out what you actually know into what your heart and your soul and your body actually believe and live out. And so, ultimately, we want to just conclude here. Jesus says, hey, I'm the light, meaning that he brings life to death. He brings illumination to darkness. And... He destroys darkness by bringing it into the light. But he says, hey, if you follow after me, you'll have the light of life. And so the question for us this morning is just simply, what does the next step for following after him look like? We talk about following Jesus all the time because we say, hey, we talk about our spiritual formation paradigm that we've 
are having this series that we continue to go back to and talk about different ways you can intentionally form yourself into the image of Jesus and participate with the Spirit in formation. And it can get complex. I mean, it can be like, okay, I've got to read my Bible, I've got to pray, I've got to give money, I've got to evangelize, I've got to you know, fast, I've got to do all these different crazy things. Okay, fine, maybe. But sometimes following Jesus is just asking, what's the next step for me? Where do I take a step now with wherever I am? Again, not to earn your salvation, you already have it. He is the light of the world, and he brings light to all who are believing in him. But then now, in it, stepping out of death and darkness and pain and sin, he's saying, hey, I, I'm saving you, but I also want to bring you into eternal life now. Not just someday when you die, but now. I want to bring you, and I want to cleanse you, and I want you to have so much more freedom and joy. And so let's step into the light by just letting somebody from your missional community, your discipleship group, somebody you know, hey, this is what's going on. I, I need to open up and let people in. Or maybe the next step for you is I need to take somewhere that I actively know the Spirit has been putting on my mind and actively been saying, hey, I want, I want you to not believe in you being the definition of good and bad for you in this moment, but I want you to believe in my definition of good and bad for you. And I want you to lay this down and find that you're actually going to find life in this. Or maybe, yes, for some of you, for the very first time, it's trusting the fact that Jesus is going to bring you life, not your own righteousness, not your ability to get good, not your ability to hold things together, but ultimately, for the first time or the millionth time, you need to hold on to the fact that you are saved by the blood and the broken body of Jesus and his righteous record on your behalf, not by anything that you could hold together. And so I invite you into that question, whether it be that question or something else that I didn't define for you, but the Spirit is going to do the work that I could never do and actually contextualize the word to you in a new and powerful way during our moment of communion. And when we take communion here, I invite whoever believes in Jesus to come forward to a station around the room, take the bread, tear it off, dip it in the cup. The bread represents the body of Jesus broken for your sin, and the blood represents the blood of Jesus shed to cleanse you and to make you pure and spotless. And so if you believe in Jesus, that's true of you, and I invite you to come forward and take this. If you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, so glad you're here. You're welcome to stay in your seat, and that's not to make you feel unwelcome, but rather make you feel welcome to just stay, to wrestle, to be here. We're glad you're here. We've all been in your seat. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. And so if you're here and that's where you're at, if you're wrestling this for the first time, we invite you just to be here. We invite you to wrestle with Jesus being the light of the world, and if you believe that to be true. For those of us who are standing in the light or being invited into a deeper step in the light, I invite you just to come forward and take the bread and the body. Let's pray.